In 2004, Veronica Wilson answered her front door on a Sunday evening. The man asked for her husband, Alistair. The man's demeanor didn't strike her as odd, and he didn't seem to be a threat. But within 10 minutes, Alistair would lie on the doorstep dying. And 15 years later, no one has been arrested. I'm Charlie, and welcome to Crime Lines. It is good to be back and to be back recording. I just have those lingering cold symptoms left. My voice is a little creaky, but not the full effects, which is so great after just about two weeks of being just sick. I will be completely well in time for the Generation Y live show that I've been invited to participate in. The tickets are now available. I'll put a direct link in the show notes, but you can get to them by going to screenland.com, click coming soon, scroll down till you see my logo next to Generation Wise, click on that, and you can buy tickets. The show is January 24th at 7 p.m. at the Screenland Armor in North Kansas City. There will be a meet and greet after the show, which is what I'm most excited about. And tickets are just $10. I can't wait to see everybody there. This week, we're going to talk about a Scottish case out of the seaside town of Nairn. This is a gorgeous city of about 10,000 in the Highlands. And it is a very popular summer vacation destination. Go Google it if you're not familiar with the area, and you'll see just how hard it is to picture anything going wrong here. In 2002, Alistair Wilson moved to Nairn with his wife, Veronica, and their two young sons. The couple had been married for a few years at that point. After a pretty short courtship, life was coming at them fast, met, married, kids, career advancement. They were really just forging ahead full steam. Alistair was a banker with the Bank of Scotland, and Veronica had been a graphic designer. When they moved to Nairn, they bought a large house called the Lothian House, about a five-minute walk from the beach. The house was more than their little family needed, but it was also a business opportunity. It had been used as lodging and a restaurant in the past. Veronica and Alistair wanted to relaunch it as such. Veronica's brother Ian was a chef, so he came on to be the restaurant chef, and they kept the Lothian house afloat for about nine months as a business. But by the autumn of 2003, the business had folded. It wasn't a huge failure racking up tons of debt from what it looks like. It looks like it just didn't work out. Alistair's full-time gig at the bank had been going well for a while. He ended up getting promoted to a job that had him looking for small and mid-sized businesses to bring to the bank to do business with them. 
Veronica said there were changes at work with how things were being done, and Alistair was finding that he didn't really love the work there as much as he had in the past. And a coworker told author Peter Blexley, who wrote a book on this case called To Catch a Killer, he said that Alistair had been working on a pretty big deal with a mid-sized business, and he spent a lot of time on it, and it fell through. That meant Alistair's bonus would be a third of what it could have been. And the reason it fell through is that the people above Alistair didn't approve it. So these little factors really could have played into his ultimate decision to start looking for work elsewhere. And he found a new job. So in November 2004, 30-year-old Alistair put in his notice at the bank. The last weekend of November 2004, Alistair was spending a typical weekend with his family. He was in this notice period at the bank. He had another week of work there before his new job started. He spent Saturday tidying up the house with Veronica. They had friends over who stayed the night and left around 3 p.m. on Sunday, November 28th. Alistair then took his older son, who was four years old at the time, with him to run some short errands, things like a grocery trip, um, dropping off recycling, that kind of thing. By 7 p.m., Alistair, the boys, Veronica, they were all home and getting the boys ready for bed. Alistair was reading them their bedtime stories while Veronica was folding laundry. The couple also had their friend's toddler over who they were babysitting. So when the doorbell rang around 7 p.m., Veronica thought it was the parents there to pick him up. It did strike her as a little odd that they didn't come through the back door like friends and family tended to do. But I don't know, maybe she accidentally locked it, maybe... They parked out front and just came in the front door. Who knows? But when Veronica opened the door to the darkness, there was a man she didn't know standing there. He was clean shaven. He was white, stocky, about five foot six to five foot ten. That is a four inch range. But the way the front door was, Veronica was standing up a couple inches above whoever was on the front step, so it would have been hard to judge his height. I think it's probably safe to say he was just kind of average height, but maybe on the shorter side of average. He wore a dark blue jacket, blue jeans, and a baseball cap that was pulled down pretty low on his face. She estimated him to be about 35 to 40 years old. There was absolutely nothing about this man that set off her alarm bells. He asked for Alistair Wilson, so she turned around and went upstairs to tell Alistair that someone was at the door for him. And I think this illustrates how non-threatening this man was. She left him there without even shutting the door. She turned her back on him and went upstairs to where her children were. She didn't invite him in, so she wasn't familiar with him, but she clearly was not concerned about him in any way. 
So Veronica took over reading the books while Alistair went to the door. She heard a muffled conversation in a completely normal tone, not shouting or anything tense. People across the street did see two men at the door talking, and they were under the same impression that it was a normal conversation. And of course, the man at the front door was facing the house, so no one got a good look at him. After a few minutes of talking, Alistair came back upstairs. In his hand was a bright blue envelope, described as the type that's used with greeting cards, and the name Paul was written on the front. Veronica said Alistair seemed a little confused when he came back up. If he told Veronica anything about his conversation with the man at the door, it has not been reported. The BBC did report that he asked Veronica if the man asked for him by name and she said yes. The man absolutely had said Alistair Wilson, but didn't say anything else. The envelope with the name Paul on it was empty. Veronica suggested they finish putting the boys to bed and talk about it later. Alistair decided he was going to actually go try to catch the man and ask him what was going on. He headed back downstairs, opened the door, and he found the man still standing there. Now we have a second person who has zero alarm bells from this guy. He wasn't acting shifty. He wasn't acting suspicious. Because if Alistair thought there was something nefarious going on, he never would have gone back downstairs. According to what Veronica later told the BBC, moments after Alistair got back to that front door, she heard what sounded like wood pallets falling over. She ran down the stairs to find Alistair on the doorstep covered in blood. He had been shot three times twice in the head and once in the torso, and at least one of the shots to his head was right to his face. Veronica saw the man quickly leaving the scene on foot, but he wasn't running. He was definitely walking. He was moving away from the house in the direction of the beach. There was no sidewalk, so he's walking right along the road. Alistair was still breathing, and Veronica called 999. Her father, who lived at the top floor of their house, tried to keep the boys upstairs, but one of them made it down and saw his father lying in the doorway. Veronica at one point had run across the street to the hotel pub restaurant there to look for someone to help, but then she ran back to the house thinking she should grab towels to stop the bleeding. Then she ran back across to get help again. This road is really narrow, with the buildings not set far back from the road. So this was a pretty short dash back and forth. This going back and forth hit me as a little scattered, which I'm sure it was. She was probably panicking, but it didn't take up very much time. People replied to the pleas for help which was important from the standpoint of wanting to save Alistair's life. But from a crime scene preservation perspective, yikes. This is a lot of people walking through a crime scene. 
The 999 call arrived a little after 7.10, and by 7.20, Alistair was on his way to the hospital. He held on for about an hour before he died. There are two things that were not at the scene that the gunman took the time to gather and take with him. One was the shell casings. The gun used to kill Alistair, which we will get to in a minute, did expend shell casings. The second was the envelope. Alistair had it in his hand when he went to the door, but by the time the investigators got there, it was gone. What was left behind was a cigarette butt. It was taken into evidence. 2004 DNA tech wasn't quite where it is today, and in 2016 it was announced they were looking at the more sensitive tests we have now to see if they could get a DNA profile. You never want to test evidence too early if you have a small amount you're working with because you do risk destroying that sample. So hopefully more modern DNA tests can do what they weren't able to do in 2004. Hopefully the test will yield something. There is a possibility the cigarette butt did not come from the killer, but it came from one of the people who rushed over to help. I do know smokers who stamp out their cigarette butts and then put them in their pockets so they're not littering. If that was in someone's pocket, it could have slipped out. But, of course, if there's any chance that cigarette butt has the DNA of the killer, hopefully they can get it. A search of the area fanned out from the Wilson's home. Searchers looked in drains, trash cans. They were looking in people's yards. They were just looking for any discarded clue since the killer apparently arrived and left on foot. If there was a waiting car for him, it was some distance from the house since Veronica did not see it arrive or leave. It was low tide at the time, so it's unlikely the killer got away by boat. A man did come forward and say he saw someone who closely matched how Veronica described the shooter. The man was on a bus from Ivernus to Nairn that night, and the time the bus would have stopped where the suspicious man got off does line up with the timeline of someone showing up at the Wilson home. And when this man got off that bus, he headed in the direction of the home. The reason he was suspicious is that he was acting shifty. When people would look at him, he would divert his gaze. He would kind of bury his head a little bit. And it seemed like he didn't want to be seen. This is the opposite vibe Veronica and Alistair had gotten from him, who completely trusted everything was fine. He was giving off a different vibe on the bus. Now, investigators did take this man's statement and made an EFIT composite sketch of the shifty man. There were a few things that didn't match Veronica's description, like the color of his hat. And the sketch was never released because investigators say they tracked down the shifty man on the bus and ruled him out as a suspect. And can you imagine being that guy? The police knock on your door to investigate you for being socially awkward on public transportation. 
But not everyone thinks the man police ruled out was the right man because they didn't tell the witness or the media that they talked to this man for years. So it kept getting reported and re-reported. It just seems odd that had they cleared this man earlier, like they said, they hadn't announced it. So it wasn't getting recirculated in the media. They haven't specified how they tracked him down, but this is the UK and you all love your CCTV over there. Street corners, traffic lights, buildings, public transportation, it's everywhere. But in this little corner of the UK in 2004, CCTV wasn't as prevalent and not as prevalent as it was even in bigger cities at that time. As far as has been reported, they did not pick up the killer on any camera. There was a camera on the corner of Alistair Street that looked down his street, but it's been reported two ways. Either it wasn't working or it was pointed in a way that you wouldn't see his house or people coming to his house. And then when the killer left, he must not have walked by any other cameras. In the hopes of getting more information out of Veronica about exactly what happened that night, she went under regressive cognitive therapy. They brought her back to the night Alistair was killed, but nothing came out of it. A week and a half after the shooting on December 8th, 2004, a council worker was unblocking a drain under the sidewalk about half a mile from the Wilson home, and found a gun. Apparently, it's really even amazing they were down there cleaning out this drain because it had been an issue for a while, and people were going back and forth on whose responsibility it was to clear out this drain. So had it been cleaned out when people were first complaining about it backing up, this gun may not have been found. It's because this got locked in some bureaucratic back and forth, that we have it being unblocked on December 8th, a week and a half after the shooting. This is just one of those really odd moments where things actually come together to help the police. So this council worker finds this gun, and when he first saw it, he thought it might be a toy because it was so small. It was four and a half inches long, which is what we call a pocket pistol. The drain was not that far outside of the radius of where police had searched already. They searched several drains kind of leading towards this one, but they hadn't made it to this one. So while people who clean out drains find all sorts of things that have been dropped, they don't generally find guns. All handguns like this are illegal in the UK. So the worker put on gloves before pulling the gun out of the mud and muck and then called the police. Ballistic tests would determine that the gun was consistent with the gun used to kill Alistair due to the proximity to the murder scene and the relative lack of handguns in Scotland, at least compared to somewhere like here, the U.S., 
it was pretty clear that this was the gun. This gun, though, was old. I'm sure I'm going to say this wrong, but it was a Heinel Schmeiser six-shot semi-automatic handgun. About 40,000 of these guns were made total in Germany between 1922 and 1945, with this particular one being manufactured likely in the 20s. 80 years later, you can imagine they're somewhat rare in Scotland, particularly since, like I said, handguns are illegal. They were banned in the 1990s. Because of when gun laws were enacted, they did have some hope the gun would have been registered at some point, since the gun could have been purchased or obtained legally initially. But the serial number gave back no known registration information. Fewer than two dozen of these guns have been found in the UK, and they were largely from old men's souvenir boxes sometimes turned in when those men either went to nursing homes or they died. There are a few ways they could have gotten into the UK in spite of not being sold there. One is that soldiers brought them home from World War II as trophies. Another is that Polish soldiers stationed in the UK during the war may have left them behind. So there was slash is a theory that the gun belonged to the killer's dad or granddad, and he pocketed it instead of turning it in like a law-abiding citizen should do. It's just really bad luck that it hadn't been registered because that would have given police a starting point. The gun fired 25 caliber bullets, which for non-gun people, Let's just say this isn't generally what you would use to execute someone. I found a great quote that sums up the 25 on the website Lucky Gunner. It's attributed to Colonel Jeff Cooper, and he said, Carry a 25 if it makes you feel good, but do not ever load it. If you load it, you may shoot it. If you shoot it, you may hit somebody. And if you hit somebody and he finds out about it, he may be very angry with you. So clearly not the powerful ammunition of choice for a premeditated murder. I think you can tell how relatively weak these bullets are because Alistair was shot twice in the head, once in the chest, at close range, and he still lived for another hour. The bullets used in the murder were not as old as the gun. They were manufactured sometime between 1983 and 1993. So these bullets could have been purchased when it was still legal to have handguns. They were only 10 to 20 years old. The gun ended up just not turning out to be the big break everyone had hoped. Even forensic evidence on it was tricky because the gun was in a blocked-up storm drain, and any fingerprints had been washed away. But where the gun was found, coupled with the killer escaping all CCTV, brings back up the idea of a getaway car. The drain had an opening on the street, 
and the gun could have been dropped out of the passenger side of the car and into the drain without anyone even noticing. It would have been harder to have done this from the driver's side. Now, of course, the killer could have still been on foot walking through the streets, but he would have missed all the CCTV if so. Police don't rule out either walking away from the scene or the getaway car, as far as I can tell. And they probably have a better idea of the layout of the cameras. And maybe it was possible for someone to have just walked through. So we have a murder and we have a weapon, but investigators couldn't figure out a motive. They narrowed in on Alistair and any shadiness in his past, his present, and they found nothing that they've made public and nothing clearly that has led to an answer. Alistair has been described as a bit introverted, a hard worker, and very ambitious. His life was his family and his work, and not a lot more. He didn't have a wide circle he moved in, so it's a good bet that it was either his marriage or his job that was at the root of the motive. Naturally, Veronica had to be looked at, and there were some whispers around town about her. I can see it in the sense that you always look at the people closest to the victim, but I really hope in the last 15 years, everyone has moved past this, because investigators have found no motive for her to orchestrate anything against her husband. Their marriage was good. She didn't have a man on the side. He didn't have a woman on the side. What she inherited after Alistair died was not worth killing over. It was their normal bank account, his share of the equity of their home, and the retirement account. I mean, there's no massive windfall here. And her kids were there. One of her sons even made it downstairs to see Alistair on the doorstep. No one who knows her believes she would have let them experience that kind of trauma, even if she was capable of ordering a hit, which they also don't think she's capable of. Alistair spent plenty of time outside of the house, going to and from work and running errands. If she was taking out a hit, she wouldn't traumatize her children by having it done at their house or put them in that kind of danger. And I think the envelope story also supports she wasn't involved. If she was staging a story, why would she make up something so weird? Why wouldn't she make up something that made more sense and was simpler? I don't know if it makes logical sense for me to say that I believe her because her story is somewhat unbelievable, but that's where I am. I don't understand why she would have made up this story. So let's move on from Veronica and talk about the envelope a little bit here because I've mentioned it a bunch of times. There are so many questions about this. It seems like the biggest clue to the whole thing, but like I said, it doesn't make any sense. For instance, the killer was still at the door when Alistair went back down there. Why? What was he waiting for? Why didn't he kill Alistair when he first came to the door if this was a hit? 
was Alistair supposed to take the envelope, put something in it, and return with it and give it back to the guy? As far as Veronica could tell, Alistair was completely confused about this envelope, and he returned to the door with it still empty. So was he killed because he was told to put something into the envelope and he didn't? And the name Paul, who was Paul? Are we talking about an actual person or was this some kind of code? And the person who gave the envelope to Alistair thought Alistair would understand it. Veronica told the BBC that she does not think, had Alistair lived, he would be able to shed any light on any of this. She doesn't think he knew why the man was there, what he wanted, and why he shot Alistair, or even who Paul was. She really thinks that Alistair was completely in the dark, and this makes her lean towards the mistaken identity theory. The man did ask for Alistair by his full name, but there are more than a few Alistair Wilsons in Scotland, and there was another one who lived in Nairn. The other man was in his 60s. He lived with and took care of his elderly mother. He had a little bit of a drinking problem, but nothing made him seem like more of a target than the Alistair who was killed. Maybe it wasn't the wrong Alistair Wilson, but the wrong person entirely. Alistair worked at the bank, and perhaps the killer or whoever sent him there thought Alistair was a man who knew more about something, whether it was a shady deal or a scandal. They may have misidentified him as someone who knew something he didn't. When they looked at his past, they couldn't find a conflict that really stood out as a motive. He really only had one, and it was with a neighbor, Andy Burnett. He owned the hotel, restaurant, pub thing across the street. Now, everyone's houses are pretty close to the road, and the road is very narrow. I live in a residential area, and I couldn't imagine my neighbors being this close to my front door, let alone a pub being this close to my house. So that's kind of at the root of this disagreement they had. Burnett decided to put a deck on the side of his building for additional outdoor seating. He built it in May 2004, and it ended up taking up a fair number of what used to be parking spots. The Wilsons were not fans of this deck. For one, it meant more people parking along their very narrow street because they couldn't fit their cars in the parking lot anymore. Driveways were getting blocked by people who weren't being very considerate. It was also open into the night, so this is essentially a beer garden outside their front door, and they had a young family. They wanted to settle down in the evenings, not listen to someone's party. Now, once you add in the broken glass in the road from people walking around outside with drinks, and the Wilsons wanted the deck gone. Now, Burnett hadn't filed to get a permit to build the deck. He apparently didn't know he needed to. 
So when he found out he needed to, he filed for it retroactively on November 8th, 2004, six months after he built it. Filing for a permit allowed Alistair the chance to formally object to it, which is exactly what he did on November 23rd. The day before his murder, November 27th, Burnett received notice of Alistair's objection. So timing-wise, I mean, the day before he was killed is when Burnett found out that there was going to be a conflict. Burnett himself had an alibi. He was in another local bar with a bunch of people. When word started spreading that there was a shooting, he was one of the people who had run to Alistair's home. And honestly, it's pretty sure Veronica would have recognized him if it was him at the door. Now that said, this was probably a hired hit. But finding out your neighbor objected to your building permit isn't a huge motivator to immediately hire a hitman for the next day. There are a bunch more steps between the objection and any action being taken on the deck. So this doesn't make a lot of sense. Why would Burnett have Alistair killed over something that hadn't even been remotely arbitrated yet? And it's not like an objection would go away with Alistair's death since Veronica still lived there and could have kept it going. So it's a very thin, thin, thin motive if you can even give it the weight of the word motive. Now, it's been 15 years since Alistair was murdered, and a lot of tips have come in. Police say they have spoken to more than 14,000 people related to the case. They've taken 3,500 full statements. And they knocked on just about every door in Nairn. But there are three tips that went out to the media and not the police. The first was from a man going by the pseudonym Peter. He entered the picture in November 2016. John Beatty was hosting his usual Radio Scotland show and covering the 12th anniversary of Alistair Wilson's murder. He had criminologist David Wilson on the show to discuss the murder when his producer told him someone called in with a tip on what happened. Beatty later called the man back, and he calls him Peter. That's the pseudonym we're using. And Peter said his friend, who's been pseudonymed Andrew, was working for a businessman who was involved with a man who was ex-paramilitary from Northern Ireland. The paramilitary guy was on the Loyalist side, so he was an Ulster Defense Association guy. The businessman also had some connection to Alistair Wilson or his bank. Peter's friend Andrew knew the paramilitary man who threatened Andrew, saying what happened to Alistair Wilson would happen to others. The implication here being this former paramilitary guy was now working as a hitman. Somehow Alistair's murder was tied up in this, where there was a situation where someone was cheated in a land redevelopment deal. 
The story's kind of hard to follow because while Peter named names, they've not been released to the public. The police have followed up on this. The background details lined up, like the businessman did have an account at the bank where Alistair worked, and the Northern Ireland guy was who Peter said he was. But as for linking Alistair specifically to either of them or any deals, that doesn't appear to have led anywhere productive. The mysterious Peter has alleged that the police are purposely covering this up because the paramilitary guy was being protected by the government. That man has since died, and no additional information has been released about this theory. So let's move on to the next tip. This came in from a man called Nate, who has been identified as an armchair sleuth. He sent a multi-page long tip to a few places. The Scottish Daily Mail, criminologist David Wilson, who I've already mentioned, the Scotsman, author Peter Blexley, who I've also already mentioned. In this, Nate says that he does not think it's a coincidence that Alistair was killed after quitting the bank. He believes Alistair had gotten some sort of undocumented loan from a shady source. The shady source planned on leveraging Alistair's position at the bank to his benefit. But when Alistair quit and couldn't be talked out of it, he was then killed. On paper, Alistair didn't have a ton of debt. He did have a big mortgage, but it's not like he wasn't making payments. Something that a coworker told author Peter Blexley was that Alistair didn't always turn in his expense reimbursement forms every month. Sometimes he'd do them after two or three months, which strikes me as someone who was not strapped for cash. I have months where I send out invoices mid-month whenever I get around to it, and then there are some months that I hit send at 12.01 on the 1st. So someone who is regularly letting reimbursements float a couple months sounds like someone who wasn't really wanting to get that money right away. So that tells me he's not someone who was that stressed about money. But the argument with this off-the-books loan isn't that they wanted repayment, they wanted money, It's that they were wanting insider banking, maybe trading information, something. Maybe just special treatment for a legitimate account, or at least the businesses they used as fronts for their illegal activity. That's something Alistair couldn't provide if he left the bank. But again, you'd expect this to have caused some stress to Alistair. And from what Veronica said, if Alistair had something eating him up inside, he didn't show it. And she felt she knew him well enough that he wouldn't have been able to hide it from her no matter how hard he tried. She is really stressed that Alistair wasn't acting cagey or off leading up to the murder 
And on that night of the murder, he was not worried about the man at the door. If he thought he was in any danger from some kind of underworld loan shark, he wouldn't have gone back to the door. He would have locked the door and protected himself and his family. His little boys were right there. So I don't know about this one. I don't know. Let's move on to the third tip. This one was provided to Peter Blexley, the author of To Catch a Killer, and he really goes into it in his book. So I'll link to it in the show notes. You guys can go out and get it. It really covers this with a lot more depth and maybe in a way you'll understand better because I'm just going to give the broad strokes. Nine months before the murder, the Livingston Football Club was forced into administration. And that basically meant the club had millions and millions of pounds in debt and they were insolvent due to their debts. The bank said this is enough and basically took over their finances, took over administering the club. And in the meantime, this would protect the club from creditors filing lawsuits while they tried to right the ship. I mean, organizations can go into this voluntarily, but that's not what it sounds like happened here. Somehow, the Livingston Football Club, the bank where Alistair worked to force them into administration, and Alistair, something was going on there. When the gunman came to the door, he was asking for something. He was trying to negotiate something with Alistair related to the Livingston Football Club and or their account. The reason Alistair was killed was because the negotiations broke down. So this is another tip that's kind of vague. One of the issues here is that no one reporting on this case and commenting on the case publicly wants to impede the investigation in any way. These are people from David Wilson to Beattie to Blexley. They have become personally involved in some way. They really care about this case. They don't want their work to hurt it. So sometimes they have to be a little vague in how much they report. And we just know it's honestly just for the greater good of the case. This idea, though, that Alistair's death was connected to something underhanded in the banking world does make sense. His life was his family and his work. Things were fine at home with family. So that leaves work. This is the same time period when the banks were not being regulated very well. They were giving out bad loans. This wouldn't come out for a couple of years. I know we felt it here in the U.S. when it did. But these bad loans, these subprime mortgages, this loosey-goosey banking had been going on in 2004. And it led to a massive economic downturn. Perhaps in 2004, Someone thought Alistair knew too much about something related to that. 
The murder was so organized that it pretty much rules out that this was a delusional random killer or someone experiencing psychosis. It seems that this being a hit is the most popular theory. There are a few things that are a bit dodgy, though. One, this assassin used a pretty weak shot. Again, Alistair was hit three times and still lived another hour. Most hits would be done and have been done with a more powerful gun, more powerful ammo. But this is the UK. Handguns are harder to come by. This may just have been the gun of opportunity, the ammunition of opportunity, and the gunman knew it wouldn't be traced back to anyone. The other thing is that the killer left a witness, Veronica. I mean, due to the lighting and his ball cap, she didn't see him well enough for a great sketch or one the police felt was worthy of releasing. Releasing a poor or inaccurate sketch can damage a case. Someone may feel suspicious of someone around them, but not call because he doesn't look anything like the sketch. Or the sketch is so vague that police get an avalanche of calls that distract them from following up on more solid leads. So some people criticize them for not releasing the EFIT sketch or releasing any sketch. But on the other hand, you can see why they haven't. So, yeah, this guy left a witness, but he did make sure she didn't get a good look at him. And nothing has come out about him having an unfamiliar accent. So either he sounded Scottish or he didn't say enough for her to pick up an accent. Likely by design, he just said enough to get Alistair to the door. So he didn't really leave anything that could identify him behind, even though someone did see him. The thing that continues to not make sense is why did the man give Alistair the envelope, let him go back inside, and close the door behind him? Because Alistair could have called the police if he knew what the man was talking about and felt threatened, or he simply could have never come back outside. That's what Veronica suggested. They just put the boys to bed and talk about it in a minute. Why did the hitman talk to him at all? He got him to the door. You shoot and you move on if you're a hitman. And that's where the negotiation theory comes in, and it's certainly posited as the likely scenario in To Catch a Killer that Alistair may not have been shot at all that night if he had done whatever the gunman was asking him to do. Maybe the name Paul was meant to clue Alistair in to what this man was talking about, but instead it just left Alistair confused. When Alistair returned to the door empty-handed or not having done what was being asked of him, that's when the gunman shot him. And of course, we don't know what was said between Alistair and this man at the door either time. We know the first time Alistair returned confused from whatever they talked about, but maybe something was said that second time, and it clicked with Alistair. He knew what the guy wanted suddenly. Either he said he wouldn't or couldn't help him, and then he was shot because he wasn't complying or because now he knew too much. 
That's also a possibility. Alternatively, it has been put forward that this was a straight hit and the envelope was a message to either the police or to the public. Paul was somehow a code or a warning. The gunman had to let Alistair show it to Veronica to confirm its existence, but this falls flat for me because, again, too many variables. Alistair could have just not gone back outside. He could have not shown the envelope to Veronica. He could have just thrown it away. If the killer wanted to leave the message Paul to be reported in the media, he could have just left the envelope at the scene. As it was, the police held back the details on this envelope for years. So it didn't work if that was the goal. In talking about who or what was Paul, there was a Paul, Paul Moore. He was head of risk management at the bank where Alistair worked, who weeks before the murder flagged the bank's loan strategy, basically saying it was destined for failure, and he was fired. He would be vindicated down the road when it all went south and the bank took a massive taxpayer bailout, billions of pounds of money from the government. But in that moment, he was just let go. Alistair ended up quitting around the same time. Perhaps someone interpreted that falsely that Alistair knew something about what Paul Moore knew. And these people were worried about a whistleblower scenario. That's pretty much the only link Alistair would have to Paul Moore. It's just as likely it was a coincidence in timing that Paul was let go around the same time Alistair quit. Alistair did have another job lined up, so it's not like he quit out of the blue. The police did interview a lot of Pauls. People named Paul if they were connected to Alistair in one way or another, they were talked to. The only other Paul, though, that has been named in the media is a man named Paul Craig Douglas. His father, Keith, lived very near the Wilson home. Paul Craig actually has gone by Craig ever since he moved to Nairn because there were so many Pauls in his class. So nobody in the area would have necessarily even known him as Paul. And Craig didn't live there anymore. He lived several miles outside of Nairn at the time. Now, his younger brother, Sean, who was in his mid-30s at the time of the murder, did live with Keith. The night of the murder, Keith said he was watching TV and Sean was in his room. He heard nothing. He didn't notice the commotion. And it wasn't until he got up the next day and stepped outside that he saw the police tape and learned something truly awful had happened. The police came by his house twice in the next couple of months. My guess is these are the usual knock-and-talk rounds, but Sean was out both times. Years later, they came back, wanting to talk to Sean specifically. My guess... Again, I don't know, but they were doing a case review and Sean would have been flagged as a neighbor who hadn't been spoken to. The issue, though, was that Sean at this point had met a woman online and moved to Canada, like a very remote part of Canada. 
His father said the nearest airport was Fairbanks, Alaska, so we're talking the Yukon. He had only contacted his dad a couple of times while he was out there. Sean has since moved back to Scotland, but he doesn't have a fixed address. His father told him that he needed to go talk to the police and he wasn't going to have him stay at his house until he just goes and gives a statement. Keith is sure Sean is not involved. He would have seen him leave the house and he didn't. And Sean was not a violent person. He's the smart, studious type. But Sean dodged investigators, at least until November of 2018, when it was in the media that they wanted to talk to him. And I've not seen a report that they have since spoken to him, but I have to imagine in the last year they've sat him down. Sean expressed concern to his family that the police were going to twist his words, they were going to try to pin something on him, and this might stem from his early years. He did have some behavioral issues as a younger boy. He lashed out physically at school and ended up being sent to a boarding school for children who had behavioral issues. It's possible he thinks that the stigma of that has followed him into adulthood. But his father said he came back from that school completely changed and is not a violent adult. I don't think anyone thinks Sean was the murderer. But the harder he tries to not talk to police, it makes me and probably the police wonder if he saw something if he knows something that he doesn't want to say. There's someone out there that knows something, probably a lot of someones who know something they're not saying. The 15th anniversary of Alistair's murder just passed, and there are still no answers. I was really drawn to this case because it seems like something out of an Agatha Christie novel, and we just need Hercule Poirot to gather everyone into the drawing room for some big reveal. But of course, that's not how a real-life investigation happens. It's while I was researching this case and thinking how interesting it is that I came across a quote that was a real quick reality check. It's to the BBC from Detective Superintendent Gary Cunningham, who is currently leading the investigation. He said, this isn't a fascinating crime. It's devastating. Devastating for Veronica, who has lost her husband, and for the two boys, who were four and two, who grew up without a father. And that really brought things back into focus for me where they needed to be. Veronica and these boys have lost so, so much, and we have two young men who have grown up in the shadow of an unsolved case, a case where there is no justice, the bad guy seems to have gotten away with it, and they didn't get to experience a normal grieving process. Their grief has been complicated, and it's the only form of grief they even know. Veronica has stayed and raised the boys in the house that she and Alistair loved so much. I know it's easy to say that I could never stay there after it happened, I'm trying to picture even 
being able to walk across that doorstep ever again. But the alternative was to uproot two already traumatized boys and start them over somewhere else. The city of Nairn, with the exception of a few gossips, have made the town a warm place for them to call home. That first Christmas, people showed up with gifts for the boys and for the family. Veronica was worried people wouldn't want their children around her boys or in her house, or that the boys would just always be seen as those kids with the murdered father and nothing more. But that's not what happened. People let them move forward and rebuild in Nairn. And for that one absolutely horrific memory from November 28th, 2004, she and the boys had two years of good memories with Alistair in the city. The boys can look at photos of them on the beach with their dad, and it's the same beach they see every day. It lets them keep that connection to Alistair. So the question ends up being, not how could they stay, but rather why would they have left? If you know anything about the murder of Alistair Wilson, you can email a dedicated address, Operation Sorn, that's S-O-R-N, at scotland.pnn.police.uk, or you can call Crime Stoppers at 0800-555-111. This information will be in the show notes. <laughs> 